0: You're listening to Bloom and Tech with David Bloom. This podcast is sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey everybody, it's David Bloom with Bloom and Tech, back for another episode of conversations about this giant collision between technology, entertainment, and media, and what it all means for those of us out there trying to make a living or just have a good time. I've been on the East Coast the last couple of weeks, stopping in New York in time for the Future of Technology Summit which was really a terrific gathering, i got to say. I moderated a panel there on the way that OTT subscription services can bring in subscribers, really vital when you're a subscription service, and tactics that the smaller companies in particular can use to survive as a bunch of very big, deep-pocketed competitors from people like Apple, Disney, Walmart, Comcast, and uh, AT&T show up. I also grabbed a few minutes with Christian Kurz, who's the SVP of Global Consumer Insights for Viacom. He was presenting on a recently released report from Viacom called Progress in Power about the ways that our lines of power, the power structures are evolving thanks to things like uh, highly empowered young generations of millennials and Gen Z and tools like messaging apps and social media and much else to really fracture some of the long-held ways that things get done. Importantly, the report, as you might expect, for a company like Biocom looks at how brands can make their way and the new roles they might take on to be successful in reaching those young audiences and being seen uh, in the appropriate ways. I thought it's a pretty fascinating report as well. I've written about it, and now we're going to talk about it with Christian. So stay tuned. First up, after a word from our sponsor, we'll hear from Christian talking about power in progress. And we're back. Here is my conversation with Christian Kurz, the SVP of Global Consumer Insights for Viacom. We're here with Christian Kurz, the SVP of Global Consumer Insights. Consumer Insights for Viacom, and he just presented on a really interesting report called Power in Progress. Fascinating, looking at the interesting ways that power is evolving at the hands of particularly young people and uh, driven by things like social media and the, the, the door-opening opportunities that it provides, but also what it means for brands, importantly. And how does this manifest for you guys? Viacom is a big um, media companies, got a lot of relationships with a lot of brands. How does this all manifest for brands with Viacom? What does it mean for you guys?
1: I, first of all, I love the fact, thanks for having me, and I love the fact that you've very succinctly summarized my my presentation and the purpose of this project, which truly is to understand what, the, what does power mean for young people and how do they evolving. So, wonderful. Well done. Thank you. Um, for us, of course, Brands like Nickelodeon and MTV, we've always been at the forefront of what it means to connect with youth. And I mean, Nickelodeon in its heydays was for kids. um, And it was the only channel that was truly for kids and not for parents. MTV the same thing it's always been empowering youth and the way we look at this is just evolution really um, in in how can we lean into our audiences particularly the younger ones um, and how can we help them amplify those voices and how can we really support we're a support role in this media company of course we try and reflect um, everybody's lives from preschoolers all the way to grandparents. But in this particular instance, is about how do we reflect what the world looks like and how do we help and amplify consumers use their power, that, that self-found power that, as you said, the internet really facilitates and empowers, and how can we lean into that? And just one of the examples is an initiative that we've launched um, in the UK, and I think across Europe, called MTV Breaks, which is all about how can we help people break into the creative industries, right? So really using our findings to take our brands and use them to help people further themselves and continue their education and and break into industries.
0: So that goes to the sort of collaborator role that you talked about in the presentation this morning at the Future of TV Summit, where we are recording this. But that's only one of, I think, nine roles that you guys target. I think it's really interesting the way this is manifesting. We see so many brands now uh, being activists. That's one of the big ones. And you mentioned Patagonia, and I think Apple's been very big, uh, and uh, Levi's has been very Big on things like LGBT stuff. Patagonia with uh, climate change—it has always been a thing that's been very scary for brands. How do they navigate making that transition from everybody's got a—you know—everybody's money's green, yep. and we don't want to piss anybody off? To we're now expected to
1: play in this space, whether we want to or not. And to stand for something. That's the thing, right? Interesting you mentioned Levi's. So we actually talked to the CMO of Levi's for this project and interviewed her. And not just in LGBT. They made a lot of strides also in voter registration. And it all, she was talking about how it all started by trying to register voters in their stores last election cycle. And then giving t- people time off to go and actually vote, so an employee engagement thing. I think
0: and that's important, too. I think it's really interesting because your employees, particularly if you're a clothing brand
1: where you've got a lot of young people working in your stores, they want to work for somebody they care about, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. They are your customers. They are your ambassadors. And you want to keep them happy. You want to keep them that way, particularly in that way, right? And one of the things she said was, and she, I think she says this really well, is you've got to stand for something. and. Every once in a while, you just have to do the right thing. And that's what it comes down to in the end, right? So you then also, of course, have to think about who is your audience and who is your target demographic. And I would leverage that really not to decide should I be on this side or on this side of the issue because you know which side you're on. That's not a question. But what you can use that to decide on is which issue do you lean into because there is a never-ending array of issues that people are passionate about. Um, and for one, it's LGBT rights and, and voter registration. It's, it's gun rights or control. It is female reproductive rights. It's the environment. Like, there's some that are more controversial for your target customers and some that are less so, right? So, so part of it really
0: is knowing your audience well enough to know the battle you need to pick and then also knowing which ones you don't need to be in. As you say, it's an endless array of opportunities
1: to be in the middle of controversies. So what makes sense? And you also can't stand for too many at the same time either, right? Like, you can maybe stand for two or three, but that's about it because there's only so much capacity in a consumer's brain to absorb those things. You can't they stand can't, for not They it. can't
0: associate yeah. enough, otherwise you stand for too many things. I mean, it's, it's almost like the challenge for a political candidate. It's like, what do you really stand for? You gotta be known for something. So these different roles, though, for brands, name a couple of them. You, you mentioned, I think, Walmart and its evolving approach to to, to gun issues, and Dick's Sporting Goods also has done that. Both those are sort of, you know, middle of the country, take care of a lot of people in flyover land who have strong feelings about gun stuff, and this is a really interesting decision on their parts. How do they
1: navigate that? How is that going? So, obviously, I don't know how exactly they navigate it, but I, we're calling them out as an example for Evolver brands. Those are brands that had thought about this and really wrestled with an issue for a while and I mean Walmart a couple of years ago made a decision to stop selling certain parts of it and then as public opinion changes as things happen and as also it becomes much more visible where the majority of consumers in this market stand and I think it's I don't know the latest number but it's well over 80% of consumers in this country are for stricter gun controls not take them away but for some sort of control right so it's a in a way, it's a relatively easy decision to agree with 80% of your consumers, but of course there's very powerful interest on either side. And I think what's really, really admirable on Walmart is that they've taken the tragic scenario that played out in one of their stores, and that's really started to change their perception of, right, well, if it can happen to me, like if you personalize this, if it can happen to me, then it can happen to anyone, and i got to do something. like. Yes, what I'm doing may not really be able to change exactly this scenario, but I can't just do nothing. And that's really what we're starting to see with a number of brands playing through here as well. I think I see a lot of collaborator
0: and a lot of cheerleader stuff going on, and I think that's great it's very heartwarming stuff I think there's a, a penumbra of good feeling that comes from you know these guys are great or these guys are great, and here's what they're doing, but that seems like almost like the easiest thing to do right
1: yeah absolutely it's it's also where a lot of brands start with right it's because it's it's it Potentially is low visibility you're just lifting up interesting stories and you're you're amplifying that so I think you're right That's oftentimes the entrance into a much more active perception and 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 how that that works But one of the things that we're that I'm seeing not enough particularly in this country is The uniter brands and this really is the whole idea of we have more in common than divides us which you can't, I mean, th- that's just true, right? We're humans, so. Well, supposedly, but I don't know if we see that these days, but your point is but we should. We, point, we need right? some more, right? That's exactly it. And, and there's one campaign that, this is a couple of years ago, TV Denmark, TV2 in Denmark did this campaign, very, very powerful spot of two minutes on the air, where lit- they literally put people in boxes, right? So they say, oh, those are the people who've just arrived, those are the people who've never seen a cow, those are the people who you know, have been here for, like all that type of stuff. And then they started asking them a series of questions, some personal, some less personal, and ask people from each of the boxes to stand forward if they, are, if that statement defines them or is true for them. And as you go through this process, you see that actually we do have much more things in common than divides us, and those boxes just don't, Really define us as strongly, and the whole idea was then to bring together and saying, right, for all that unites us, let's see the positive thing. And Heineken did an interesting campaign as well, where they deliberately put two people who fundamentally disagree on a topic, whatever that is, and made put them in a situation where they had to work together on something unrelated. In this case, they had to build a bar physically out of something, and then they showed them each other's opinions, and then they had to decide, do you want to continue that conversation? You're starting to see a lot of these initiatives, particularly in Europe. Which has been known for its divisions over the years, and not that long ago, in really bad ways, so. Absolutely, and also a few years ago with the, the influx of refugees over the Mediterranean. So there's a lot of tension, and you're seeing a lot of companies really start to take their social responsibility actually seriously. And I think Germany was an example where newspapers of all political persuasions asked their readers to sign up to talk to somebody who disagrees with them. And obviously you can only do that if you have a right and a left paper and then they match people. And those are conversations that are in private. And that's one of the things that we're actually seeing right now very strongly here is that in the social world, yes, it gives me power to stand for something, but we're also starting to see a retreat into conversations that are behind walls to protect them from trolling, which is such a big issue. Doesn't really matter what you say anymore, somebody's gonna vehemently disagree with you and really lay that out in the social world. So you're starting to see that conversations are happening in WhatsApp groups or behind walls, which of course then leads to this whole echo chamber point because if you only hear people you agree with you, then that's all you're gonna hear. So I think there's definitely a role that, that brands, particularly media brands, can play, and we're in the process of figuring out exactly how we lean into that.
0: Because the media brands have reached beyond the walls that are artificially created by the echo chambers of social media. I'm just reading Gia Tolentino's book of essays, uh, the New Yorker writer, and her first one was talking about, again, the echo chamber and and those challenges. I was wondering if that uh, Denmark thing you talked about, the boxes thing, was inspired by the square, that wonderful film out of Scandinavia that was different boxes, but somebody would sit in the square and ask for help and people would come and, and it sort of feels like kind of an inversion of that, yeah. but, but the same sort of spirit, the in the same spirit. shape, same yep. geometry. Uh, I, I
1: don't know which one came first, but there's definitely a connection.
0: There's definitely a connection. In, in terms of going forward then, so you'd love to see more Uniter brands uh, or brands doing the Uniter role. Are there other areas in particular that seem ripe and are underutilized
1: right now that you all identified in this report? I I think for us, and and, I'm jumping back to the the implications for Viacom and our brands, I think it truly is about going back to the the amplifier idea and, and one other example of how we did that was during the March for Our Lives, so the school walkout, a number, the majority of our networks just went dark for 17 minutes. For a channel like Nickelodeon, that is a really, really big decision and a big step forward because if you go back 20 years, the whole idea behind Nickelodeon was, no, this is a safe space where you do not have to worry about the rest of the world. This is where kids can put, uh, where parents can put their kids if something in the world is really going wrong. And we played that role for a long time, but that's clearly evolved and that's really changed in the perspective of, no, this is important to our audience and we should reflect what they are talking about. And, and that's the sort of ideas where I think every brand needs to and can think about this a lot more because there are little hooks and little elements that you can pull out. And again, going back to McDonald's, where it's just providing college scholarships for your employees, right? This whole idea of McDonald's is probably not going to be your last job, but it might well be your first job.
0: Yeah, they make a big deal out of it. We'll be your best first job, I think, is one of the things they talk about, and they get a lot of talent that way, and some of which they they scrape and pull into their own company for the long term, not just flipping burgers, but doing all the stuff at the corporate level as well. But as you say, for Viacom, I mean, if a media company can't be an amplifier, who can, right?
1: That's exactly it, right? And we, we did this last year already at the EMAs where we gave out a Generation Change Award to young change makers around the world. It was so hard to decide which one, so we gave them to all of them. But it's, it's that type of idea where we really want to continue to move forward to lift up those issues, those topics, and most importantly, also those powerful young people who have the energy, the aura to bring other people with them, right? Because we think it is more powerful for young people to do this themselves. We can help them, but it's not us on going to them and say, you should fight for blah, 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 right? It's about finding the people who have built this. We can provide information. We can provide all sorts of amplification and Platforms and, and, and sorry, platforms networks, um, and then communication. It's a new word,
0: platworks. I like yeah, that one. It's like, awesome. like it's just you know, it's like a smear. That's your next report. Actually, is the uh, the the rise the of, of the, the rise of the platwork. You know, yeah. I think it's uh, got a lot of opportunity, and it's going to keep you forever busy. Well, thank you so much, Christian. Uh, this is uh, David Bloom with Christian Kurz, the you. SVP of Global good Consumer good. Insights for the giant and getting bigger. Media company Viacom, soon to be Viacom CBS. Thank you, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. And now here's my panel from the Future of TV Summit, um, which was held at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Battery Park in the south end of Manhattan. Beautiful space looking out over the Hudson River and toward the Statue of Liberty. Great place to do a conference. They've been doing it for 17 years. And uh, in cooperation with the Stern School of Business at New York University, some great folks there, got to see some familiar faces from back on the West Coast, which was fun, including the show's organizers, Ned and Tenzar Sherman, who um, do a lot of great conferences in L.A. as well on the game business, uh, entertainment, digital entertainment in general. Ned is also a partner at Manette Phelps, and uh, they were kind enough to have me moderate this panel of really smart marketing and business development executives talking about the tactics and approaches that VOD services should take in trying to survive as all these big players come in. So give a listen.
2: Welcome to the streaming video track. Our first session is OTT subscriber acquisition, finding the right marketing mix. Please welcome Ian Greenblatt, Managing Director of Technology, Media, and Telecommunications at J.D. Power. Please welcome Ronit Schwartz, Director, Business Development and Partnerships, Media, and Telecom at Kaltura. Please welcome Pamela Young, Executive Director of Velasis Digital. And last but not least, welcome our moderator, David Bloom, a consultant and columnist of Tube Filter.
0: Thanks for coming, everybody. We want to talk about uh, one of the quintessential challenges of the OTT streaming revolution that's happening right now, and that's how do you get people in the door. I you know that I just saw a report that suggested there are already more than 300 OTT channels out there, over-the-top video channels out there. You may have heard particularly if you were watching sports or the Emmys this weekend that there might be a couple of more coming from a couple of small startups like Apple and Disney. Peacock from NBC Universal slash Comcast. We're going to talk about some of all that and more about how you get people in the door and then keep them. So to start... Let's talk a little bit about what the challenges are if you are a smaller provider. You're not Apple, which knows a little bit about marketing, but maybe you are Joe and Jane OTT Channel 27, and you're trying to get some subscribers in there. What are the challenges you face? And and I'd really like to get into some some of the sort of the mental processes of how you start to attract a subscriber base and where you go to look for them. Ronit, you want to start?
2: I think one of the challenges is if you're competing with an aggregator who has a vast content catalog, that's really what you're competing against. Because by nature, your content is going to be somewhat limited. People are now used to getting a lot for their money. So for $4.99, you can access to uh, hundreds of movies and episodes. Sure. So really the value for what you get, people are looking at the volume. And if you're a niche uh, content creator, your catalog is going to be much smaller. So I think that's you know, their starting point is already challenging in that sense. What they have to their benefit is exclusive content. So, you you know, you do have that exclusivity where your content's not available in any of the bigger players. So balancing those two is where they could potentially succeed.
0: Okay, so what are you seeing, Emily, in terms of opportunities and challenges for the little doctor?
3: Sure. So I think um, one of the biggest things out there is just understanding your audience, right? So I mean, your content can be incredible, but if you don't have the right folks, the right people who are interested in your content, if you're not reaching them or finding offline and online data signals that can do that, it's going to be incredibly hard to find people to, to subscribe and then ultimately to stay. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's finding the right balance. Who is that person? What are th- What are they doing outside of your own service? So what are they doing outside of watching your programs? Are they going to the gym? Are they shopping for particular things? I think those are all telling about the lifestyle that that person leads. Um, this is like a
0: psychographic approach to your customers, right? And so, what's adjacent to the thing that you're that you're showing, and how do you connect to them from those other places, mm-hmm. right?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think I think it's not too dissimilar from how niche consumer packaged goods. Providers are out there marketing them, themselves or, um, you know, any number of other things, right? There, there have been competitive categories for a very long time. It's There's
0: nothing more exciting, by the way, than thinking of your entertainment product as a consumer packaged good. <laughs> yes. So that's going to be pretty exciting for a lot of Hollywood. I can tell you that right, right.
3: now.
0: Uh, my library of impossible foods or whatever. So think like a CPG guy and market the psych- psychographically, okay? And what would you do?
4: I think with the numbers you're talking about, 300-plus uh, new entrants or existing entrants, uh, the key is differentiation, right? How are you going to find the right content mix? How are you going to write? Because all content is niche to someone, right. All con- and all niche content is primary content to someone. So how do you find the right mix? I'm, I'm still kind of— very kinda,
0: Zen of you, by the way. I just— uh, <laughs> Ian, the Buddhist.
4: Ian, the Buddhist. Yes. Yeah we talked about this earlier right what's past is prologue we can look at the history of video on demand and how those buckets of content turned into ott which is really vod with a shinier uh, wrapper on it, or an easier way to consume it so look at the history of video on demand how did comcast get a giant 50,000 title plus bucket of content and titles they did that by going to studios and say, we have, to, we have to have these VOD titles, we have to have, they'll come, don't worry, eyeballs will come, and we'll monetize it somehow. That hasn't happened yet. The eyeballs have come, the monetization hasn't. And so, what, I, what I'd say is, is it the flight to quantity of titles? Well, that worked for Netflix to start.
2: Right, that's but, what they
0: differentiated with, and but everybody else seems like that's now table stakes for the big boys, right? So we've got 30,000, they've got 50,000, we've got uh, five figure whatever it is and what does that even
4: mean, right? right you've, you've got it exactly right. What it worked for them was it got them the cash flow and the subscriber base to be able to go for the next thing, which is the flight to quality. And that's where I think we're now seeing these players, Disney Plus especially, you'll see that. I think HBO Max will, will see that as well. It's those. Those unique titles, high production quality titles that I think will likely be the differentiator for those 300 plus. You
0: know, to some extent it's interesting because, like, Disney has freely, Bob Iger about a year ago got up in front of an investor conference and freely admitted, he's like, We just can't match, in the term he used I thought was fascinating, we can't match the velocity of new programming that was coming from Netflix and 700. 700 new series and movies a year, which is astonishing. I don't know how much free time you guys have, but I don't have that much free time. But they're not going to come with and Disney never really had a deep catalog, really. I mean, people always think they do. They never really had a big one compared to, like, I used to work at MGM and they had 4,000 movies and they had 10,000 hours of programming and all that. So they're playing catch up a little bit so they can't do the 50,000 hours, but they can do the flight to quality is what you're saying. Yes. And that's, that's their differentiator. Ronit, you got a very yeah, quizzical look to on say. your face.
2: So one thing about Disney, what they do have is IP and legacy and the fact that they grew their subscriber base on other OTT services and then pulled the rights from those. And now it's more about converting those clients from their old destination, from the Netflix, directly to their own standalone offering. So, so that's the So how would different. you extract? And the second thing I would say is you don't have to be kind of a, a standalone offering in OTT. I would say you can be an add-on to a larger pay, you know, operator. And I think some niche content creators have found success with that, and then ride kind of on their marketing budget. So, mm-hmm.
0: don't create your own standalone don't service. do stand well, I mean, Viacom, yeah. to some extent, is doing this, right? I mean, they've got BET Plus launching, but Viacom is producing for mm-hmm. a lot of other people. CBS has CBS All Access, and now they're going to be one big happy, more or less, family. <laughs> It's great to be a Redstone, but they also are producing stuff. I mean, actually, Netflix. My recollection is Netflix actually created the new Star Trek movie, or new Star Trek series, Discovery, with CBS, which only kept the U.S. rights, and Netflix is doing that everywhere else. That's a way, actually, to. Right. You know, no one knows it's that right. if you <laughs> don't live in Britain, and you're not a Trekkie, <laughs> uh, Trekker, Trekker yeah, apparently that's the term, not Trekkie. My apologies. You're saying there's a lot of opportunities there, if you're the small guys, partner up get right. inside somebody else's much bigger boat and sail on to some version yeah. of I don't know if you've
2: heard of a service called Dog TV. No. Um, yeah, so they're we actually, have. They're barking at the wrong we
4: tree. We cover them on our show on tomorrow, Television. So
2: that is content created uh, to be watched by dogs. <laughs> uh, so it's quite niche. And people are paying a premium <laughs> to watch it, but they're doing so on DirecTV and other operators. So they're licensing you know, that channel to, uh, to a larger operator. Wait, do they
0: just play like dog whistles the whole time? Or?
2: Um, also, wind blowing in your ears, wind apparently. Blowing. The sensation yeah. of wind if, if that you only stick works your head out of the not So yeah, so that's quite niche. And I don't think they would ever be able to go against a Netflix. And they don't have to. They can just be an add-on to a larger well, operator.
3: I think, I think to something that we talked about earlier was a lot around, what is your metric? So mm-hmm. what do you want? Do you want a highly engaged audience that is small? Do you want a very large audience that isn't necessarily as engaged? And what value do you bring to that broader OTT environment, right? Mm -hmm. So dog TV brings a lot of value because people are very interested in it. And and they, you know, people take care of their dogs the way they take care of their children.
0: Better. (laughs) Better. (laughs) Or better,
3: yes. Or better. I will tell you this is a true story. (laughs) My mother
0: actually was talking about how she was doing some crazy thing for her two lovely, wonderful retrievers. said, well, you never treated me like that, mom. When I was growing up, she goes, well, you're not a dog,
2: and that's <laughs> my
0: mother, so you can understand my issues right. here. So you're right, though, you're creating value for a specific audience, a lot of dog owners out there, some mm-hmm. of them are a little obsessive, so that actually makes a lot of sense for that kind of low-cost programming, a fairly... Non-discriminatory or non-discriminating <laughs> audience, right. right? The flight to quality on dog TV. I just want to think what that would be. That, that's an opportunity, though, right? Mm-hmm. right? So to find that niche of specific folks and market to them. Now, do they sell Purina dog chow to those dogs, or how do they make money?
2: It's subscription, so it's 19.99 a month. Wow. Don't
3: yeah, need to sell the dog that's the last I heard. <laughs> it may have
2: fluctuated with recent, you know, new. Uh, I think that's
0: better than playing Fox News Channel. New all day services for <laughs> available,
2: but. Uh, but, yeah, exactly, you know.
3: Well, and I think there's there's also, like, quant, there's the the smaller player, or well, I wouldn't call them smaller, but Crunchyroll, for instance, right? You talked about having a highly engaged audience earlier, and I think they don't do a lot of the let's go everywhere. They talked about that. That's not their strategy. I think that's, you know, something that the engaged audience is equally as valuable. So as you think about moving into, you know, the area beyond this or the era beyond this where people are bundling, they now have a highly... Valuable audience that can be bundled together with other things and bring more value into that space.
4: All right, and then there's like a cheddar which wanted to be what was it let a thousand flowers bloom? Speaking your mic. Like a thousand flowers bloom, cheddar. They wanted to be on every platform and every opportunity. Right.
0: right. A right. Thousand cheeses bloom on cheddar.
4: <laughs>
0: okay. So I'm just when in cheese be cheesy. Cheesy. And I was a cheesy joke. This does beg another question, and we got into this a little bit in our conversation before we came in here, which is what's a win for the big boys? And I think my point, and I'd love to hear you all expound in your own directions, is that a win for Apple is very different for a win for Disney Plus, which is very different for a win for, for Peacock, which is Comcast's new service. Uh, to come next April or HBO Max also to come next spring. But how would you all define wins and how they might get there? Because, again, we want to get back to how how do the big boys help get subscribers in the door? What are the tools? What are the, the levers they can pull? And how do they get to a win?
2: I think win for them may be different from a revenue goal or or a subscriber goal, but what is common to all of them I think would be penetration. So we know it's a competitive market, a very crowded market, almost saturated, so for them right now the goal would be to reach as many households as they can and then monetize later. So you really just
0: want to make sure, you're saying get the message out so people know who the heck you are, whether it's Peacock or TV Plus or whatever. And then we'll worry about that other stuff later. Well,
2: get the downloads, and then get the active users, then convert them to paying, et cetera, et cetera. So there's first get into the household, right? There's a whole funnel that they would first want to get into the audience mm-hmm. and then be monetized.
3: Well, and I think I think we talked a little bit too about like an Apple T- Apple TV Plus, right? For instance, with them they're gonna be in everybody's pocket, right? If you buy a new phone or you buy a new computer tablet, it's gonna come for free. So their goals may be just truly to provide more value and get more people into the hardware and use the the information or the data they're getting or collecting from this platform to build better hardware or, you know, different things. I don't think that they're necessarily going for as many people. They already have the penetration, so what's their next goal? So I think everybody's going to look at it a little differently, depending on who you are and what you're, where you come from is.
0: Yeah, they've got 1.4 billion devices yeah. already sold, and, and <laughs> as I sort of discovered when I was sort of noticing that this, giving it away to everybody who buys a new device from Apple, They sold 280 million Macs, iPhones, and tablets last year. If they sell something like that in the next year and give everybody a free year, which is what they say they're going to do, that's going to be a lot of bodies, and we don't know how to value that, right? That's one of the things that's going to be tough. It's like Apple's 100 million subscribers might not be, to some people, as valuable as Disney Plus's 15 million that send more people back to their resorts, right?
2: And how many of those are active?
0: And how many of those are active or active enough? I mean, even mm-hmm. what's active enough? What counts as active?
2: Right? There's no standardization. There's
0: yeah. no standard mm-hmm. whatsoever. And I think that's going to be a challenge for the analysts trying to figure out how this uh, matters for evaluating these stocks and the value of the stocks and, and the additive value of these shows. But it's going to, be, it's going to matter because some of these are hybrid models, too. So mm-hmm. Comcast Peacock is going to be ad-supported for free to everybody that's on uh, Comcast broadband service,
4: right? I, I would argue that Apple TV is a hybrid as well because you can't do this by revenue, right? You can't keep score by revenue because they're going to tax the other players. Oh, you would like an app on our store? Great. Give us 30% of your gross revenue.
0: All right. Well, ne- and Netflix do- won't, you can't subscribe to Netflix, you can get the app, but you can't subscribe to Netflix through the app so they don't want <laughs> to share anymore. That's that right. was. That was, I think, I think, the number was something like $400 million that they were paying Apple. It was, For the it was tax? Shocking. Shocking number. So these other guys are going to say, we really don't <laughs> want to be giving you guys more money while you're you're taking all our viewers. But
4: yet, if you want to play in the platform, yeah. you have to pay the tax.
0: you got to pay the tax.
4: Right? Uh, well, and the other thing is, if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, that's paying to join them. Although with Comcast, for example, like you definitely want part- to, I really like the way you put it, partnering up is, is a very good idea. Mm-hmm. If you can stay within, for example, the X1 platform, right? right. And you're, mm-hmm. you're an app, you're a preloaded app download. Just press the button, there you go. Definitely. Moreover, and even more importantly, you're part of the common search, mm-hmm. right? So long as you're in that right. federated search catalog, right. the discovery rate's going to be far higher for your content than if you're a standalone application download in, in the app store.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting what Comcast is doing by treating Netflix, and now they've, they've got several more partners that have come in that, that look like another cable channel. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go from input one to input seven and find Netflix or whatever. Yeah. It's just another cable channel, and they've been doing that for a year and a half, two years now. And right. I think that's yeah. really smart on Comcast's part to see it as a potential partner as opposed to competitor. So it's all, it's all about like the war for input one. Yeah. Right. The War for Input One. Okay, this is going to be a new series, wow. actually. The War for Input One. <laughs> it, it's the it's
4: the hegemony of that platform. It's how do you stay in the experience the longest. And Comcast very smartly figured that out. We will absolutely give room to the bigger players, and, and now it will be to the other players as well, to keep them in the experience. Because X1 isn't just a video delivery platform. It's a home security platform, a smart home platform. It's all of the other services, the web-based services, that hang off of this display layer called X1.
3: Right. Well, and I think that all brings it back to, like, if you're a smaller player, you have to really hyper-focus on your audience. Yeah. Um, because you're not going to be, like, discovery in this world of 300-plus ways to, to consume or, or places to be, you're going to have to find the audience you want, and you're going to have to find them off the platforms that you're typically used yeah. to getting them on. Um,
2: I think you can find them on the platform sometimes, especially with um, unified search, right? right? So, I think that's a great discovery tool, and if you are smart in using user segmentation tools, you can find your audience within the platform and deliver the right kind of content to the right kind of This audience. is all going to be about
0: user segmentation, though. I mean, we're right. going to be segmenting audiences like Robespierre or something like that, but okay, that was a little bloody. <laughs> but anyway, that being said, Deep. you know, we're going to be cutting it every which way. You were talking about uh, psychographics and, and adjacent interests and all that. This is like slice, 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 slice to get to the slices that matter to you. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the marketer's full employment act, right?
3: Well, as as you look at it, right, it's it's relying on AI and machine learning to be able to help with that from a discovery perspective, so you're not going after segments, you know, the standard segment that looks the same, especially as we think about you know anything in the niche space, or mm-hmm. honestly, um, if you think about a show, right? So being able to market that show because that's ultimately if the content is what's driving the people to want to subscribe, you're gonna need to find the people that are interested in those individual shows. So um, really
0: granular on top of everything else, right? right. Segments and grains. So I, mean, th- I
3: think finding sh- sh- finding one place or one platform that you can get that granular level data around a more robust picture of who that segment is, and and I'm not talking about segment. I'm talking about individual user. Who are those folks? Where are mm-hmm. they looking for? Or were they showing intent, and then? ultimately being able to touch them across multiple touch points that they're in. so whether that be mobile or video or you know standard display, I think those are all things that, that people are interested in or even even offline, for instance, like that I know that sounds crazy to some extent for, for an online platform, but really that's how subscriptions have always come, right? So that is a, a totally relevant channel for you to market to um, when you're getting to the right individual. And then I think ultimately the, the next piece of that is once you own and understand your audience, you can push for more transparency. And I think that's one of the biggest issues in this, this whole world, if, if we are really being honest about it, is the closer you can get to your consumer, the more you can understand are they truly um, engaging and Im- involved in your, your media.
0: One of the big, splashy launches to come that I have not discussed is Quibi. I'm just curious, does everybody know what Quibi is? Who doesn't know what Quibi is? Anybody? It's okay. We love you still. <laughs> And if you didn't know how to pronounce it, we also understand that, too. Quibi, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Meg Whitman leading a company trying to launch next April, mobile-only, 7,000 pieces of content, short-form, episodic, movie-length totally but cut up into little bite-sized pieces of about 10 minutes apiece at a really high per minute cost, $100,000 per minute. They told us in an audience that I was in a couple months ago, a few months ago, that they were going to spend $470 million on marketing. And I'm just curious, since they haven't told us how they're going to spend it, how you guys would spend it to launch this complicated and challenging new service. What would you recommend that Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman do to make Quibi go?
2: Okay. Sure. As the non-marketer, I'll start. I think um, they should tap into some of the creators and the audience they bring as influencers and probably use them as influencers and Apple social media. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the strongest brand they have for them right now, the creators and the, the big star names that are attached to it. Right.
0: Yeah. They've, put, they've hung their hat on that pretty hard. So. mm mm-hmm.
3: yeah Yeah, I mean I I 100% agree I think they're spending a ton of money on content creators and and on the people that are going to be in these shows and so leveraging their social platforms and understanding who are the people that are already engaging with them it's going to be much easier to get them on board for that 10 minute watch if they already like whoever is is starring in that and I think as you get into the more uniqueness of certain shows right the Steven Spielberg horror film that's going to. I don't know if we're calling it, but whatever Poor you Poor episodic. Poor episodic thing. Um, if they're talking about that, that's only going to be after dark. Like, how do you engage someone into doing that? It's probably not when you're wanting them to watch it. It's probably before when you're wanting them to watch it. So starting to think about the right day parts and the right mm-hmm. times to message that and making sure that it's, it's relevant and hyper-relevant to that person and being able to immediately consume.
0: Ian, so, what, what would you think? Well, uh, how, would you, how would you do it for Quibi?
4: So it's not a brand. Uh, and it's no one knows what it is yet. It's not right. a brand that's in the zeitgeist. This
0: room knows. These are very smart people, and maybe in the industry. But there is that. But I mean, but okay, you're so right. That's,
4: so that's about forty subscriptions. Beyond, that's about forty. Beyond <laughs> that,
0: actually, question: How many of you are going to subscribe? Anybody?
4: Wow! I
3: might.
0: One, I saw one hand.
2: <laughs> Two, hands. Two hands,
0: okay. Yeah.
2: I think it's easier to subscribe for $4.99. People that subscribe and then cancel, which right. is okay. what's happening with most OTT providers. So we're going to yeah. see. Well, we're going to get to yeah. We're going to see high churn. <laughs> yeah. Our
0: last question, but but and, so it's not a brand, so it's got to build a brand. It's so you a got brand. to build a brand, and
4: so I, re- I really like, like what, you what you does said Quibi before. stand for? Right. You, you go for yeah, exactly right. What is the brand promise? It's really not obvious. Right. But I think you're exactly right. It's all about social mm-hmm. for, for that particular. Not a brand yet. They're going to have to rely on the brands of the, the creators and, and the actors, the, the very well-established brands of the creators and actors that they're paying top dollar for. Mm-hmm. So beyond that, I, I don't know how you would do it.
0: And that does lead us to, to churn. Churn is the, the real killer here. It's not like you've got to call up Comcast and they'll send out a guy in two weeks and, and you've got to return the box and etc etc. It is, oh, my month's up, boom, I'm out of here, I'm on to the next thing. How do you deal with churn? What are the questions here? And what are the tools that you would employ for any of these guys to try to reduce churn and keep people paying month over month?
2: So, uh, our clients are using technology, obviously, and data. So, using the data they harvest from the user behavior uh, to then offer a very targeted experience. So, I think content recommendations have kind of become table stakes. Everybody will offer content recommendations. But you can actually alter the entire experience, the entire UI UX, to kind of surface video content that is more appealing to them to put it up top. There's no reason my homepage should look the same as your homepage. Mm-hmm. So, we're seeing people use this, what we call targeted TV to really make sure people are retained, continue to be engaged with the platform.
0: Kind of crucial is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, Netflix is pretty good at this. They've had 20 years to figure it out. You see not only a different thing on my page to your page, but even the same show may have a different three second
2: Mm -hmm.
0: trailer, depending on whether it's like, maybe we both are looking at Pulp Fiction and you're a John Travolta fan and I'm an Uma Thurman fan, and we will see different bits of that movie to each of us, because Netflix will have figured that out based on our previous watch history. What else should they be doing, Pamela?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think there's also the conversation about what churn really means, and are we talking about getting people back into the platform, right? I mean, realistically, the way that that binge-watching happens, and the fact that there are going to be all of these services, um, and we will only add one6 Per right person, yeah. so I think I think that is something that we need to have a, a real conversation about in terms of are we open are we willing to have these people for a few months and then try and get them back and then I think in that space it really has to do with um, being able to model look likes about people who are your your own users and being able to understand who are those people and and kind of leaning into technology to help you to find more like that, so you're continuously filling your funnel, then being able to understand um, potentially, is there, is there some sort of, I don't want to call it a reprimand, but something that you should do or could do to those that have canceled and come back and cancel and come back? And how do you, how do you re-engage them
0: into Yeah. I mean, that I think it's, an, you, to your point, I think this is a really interesting question an almost existential question for these guys is, if you lose them, can you get them back? We heard this morning, if you were there. Netflix has around 60 million households that are subscribers in the United States. They've had another 20 million who signed up and then left. Mm-hmm. And there's about 110 million mm-hmm. subs I mean, households in America. So, so they haven't got a lot of room for never Netflix people. Mm-hmm. But can they pull back some of those 20 million that came and went? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a question for everybody. So in... What's your thoughts?
4: So this is going to be a little self-serving. I apologize. You Um, have to call
0: J.D. Power and get some quality assurance. There you go.
4: (laughs) Um, We're about to release the television service provider uh, study. And so what I can tell you is it's all about the experience. It's about customer experience. Customers who are very satisfied are very loyal. Loyal customers don't churn. If you make for a fantastic, immersive experience, they're not going to depart. Also, it's, it's got to be, your, to your question of how do you get them back, right? It, I don't think the name and shame game is going to work with that. However, they still have, Netflix or specifically, still has an extraordinary wealth of data about those customers that left. So oh,
2: right! The, I, I, can, mm-hmm. I think you can actually yeah. catch them right before they're leaving. So if you're smart about analyzing the data and the user behavior and you see someone's viewership has dropped in the last weeks, so you know that they finished binging, that they're on their way out. This is your prime time to leverage that data and offer them something new and be ready with that next binge-worthy series. So I think instead of investing in new customer acquisition constantly after they leave, spend more on retaining them and increasing their lifetime value. Well, I think
3: I think specifically to that point, right, it's, it's not necessarily if they if they stop binge watching, they're probably mm-hmm. not on your platform. So it's like, where do I find how do I leverage the data I do have about them to go find them and retarget them to make sure that they're coming back. And how what you, do reel I reel them back in? Right. Mm-hmm. And what do I decide is the right thing to show them? So That's I think right. it's, it's really about mm-hmm. digging deeper into the insights and, and to some extent, having the right audience in the first okay. place. Okay. Uh, well, the I cost think, of acquisition
2: uh, I, is I'm in being the, told that, the cost uh, of retention is in the hundreds. Right.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm being told that uh, we have to reel you guys back into the next panel, and give these guys a big hand. I think they were great. And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. A big thanks again to the Future of TV Summit and to uh, Ned uh, and Tinsar there, as well as to my panel and to Christian Kurz of Viacom for his time and talking about his report. If you like my show, please rate, review, share, subscribe, all those wonderful things that help the magic algorithm machines figure out that, hey, I'm really cool and people should listen to me, people like you, smart people who want to understand what's going on in this fast-changing and very complicated space and serve it up to them as well. It just makes my life better in so many ways, and I really appreciate anything you can do. If you really like my show, uh, the site where I am um, both hosted and syndicated is Anchor.fm, now part of Spotify. And they, among other things, make it possible for you to throw a few bucks in the till as a supporter of the show. That would mean a lot to me and help keep the wheels rolling on this magic media mogul machine that is Bloom in Tech. If you can help, it'd be great. Otherwise, if you have a comment, I'd love to hear from you. You can also go to anchor.fm, and I think they make this possible across all the platforms, the 10 platforms where you can find my show, to leave an audio comment that I can also weave into the show. I'd love to hear your thoughts about things like Christian Kurz's report or Viacom's report, more accurately. On progress and power and the way it's changing and what it means for brands, how your company is trying to negotiate this transition and what you're doing, uh, what it means for these new power lines that are being developed across social media and uh, messaging apps and Facebook groups and things like that, and how that manifests and everything from the Gilets Jean in France to the Hong Kong protests to Greta Thunberg at the United Nations, who, by the way, had spoken just A day earlier and a few miles away from where our summit was held. People like that, uh, the March for Our Lives, as Christian uh, mentioned, lots of other organizations and, and efforts that are leaderful instead of leaderless or led by just a handful of people are popping up everywhere and affecting change and has a lot of implications. So I'd love to hear about that. Or if you work for a video on-demand service and are trying to make your way, I'd love to hear what you guys are doing that you find is effective in trying to survive and thrive and differentiate from all the competition. You can follow me on Twitter at David Bloom, B-L-O-O-M or on LinkedIn uh, at David L. Bloom. Or send me a note. Let me know what's up, and uh, please keep in touch. Look forward to hearing from you on these and a thousand other things. In the meantime, I hope you're doing well and uh, you're enjoying the arrival of fall. The weather's changing even in sunny Santa Monica, where we get a little cooler at night. The days are shorter. It's not quite so much fun to go to the water because it's darn cold by now. Anyway, uh, it's still beautiful, and fall has its own special feeling that is even felt in Southern California, believe it or not. Anyway, this is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech. Over and out. You've been listening to Bloom in Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone.